This is Space Time Series 22, Episode 80, for broadcast on the 1st of November 2019. Coming up on Space Time, the Lucy mission to Jupiter's Trojan asteroids, ESA's solar orbiter on its way to the launch pad, and still no sign of India's failed lunar lander. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's Lucy mission to study Jupiter's Trojan asteroids has passed its final design review phase. That means it's now been approved for construction, bringing it one step closer to its 2021 launch date. Trojans are asteroids orbiting about 60 degrees ahead and behind a planet as it orbits the Sun. These locations are known as the L4 and L5 Lagrangian points. Lagrangian points are named in honour of the Italian-French mathematician Joseph E. Louis Lagrangia, who was working on the general, some say dreaded, three-body problem in orbital mechanics. They're points in space where the gravitational pull of two bodies, such as the Sun and the Earth, or the Earth and the Moon, or in this case, Jupiter and the Sun, tends to cancel each other out, while equalising the centripetal force needed for a small object to move relative to the two larger bodies, and so allowing the smaller object to remain in position relative to the two larger bodies for an extended period of time. Overall, there are five Lagrangian points. L1, L2 and L3 are along a line connecting the two primary bodies, say the Earth and the Sun. So L1 is between the Earth and the Sun. It's often used by spacecraft studying uninterrupted views of the Sun, such as the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory satellite SOHO. The L2 position is on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun. It's currently home to the Planck spacecraft and the soon-to-be-launched James Webb Space Telescope, That's because it's ideal for astronomy, because spacecraft there are still close enough to communicate with the Earth, and they can keep the Sun, Earth and Moon behind the spacecraft for solar power, while still providing a clear field of view for deep space observations. The L3 position is on the opposite side of the Sun to the Earth. Because L3 is always hidden from Earth by the Sun, it's become popular in science fiction as the location of a hypothetical second Earth. And that brings us to the L4 and L5 positions, it's where Jupiter's Trojan asteroids are found. NASA's Lucy spacecraft will undertake a 12-year journey covering almost 6.5 billion kilometres to visit a record-breaking seven asteroids, one main-built asteroid, and six Jovian Trojans. Lucy mission principal investigator Harold Leveson from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, says Trojans are leftovers from the early days of the solar system, effectively fossils of the planetary formation process, holding vital clues to deciphering the solar system's history. He says Lucy, just like the human ancestor fossil after which it's named, will revolutionize science's understanding of our origins. The design review was a major mission milestone. An independent board, including members from NASA and several external organizations, evaluated all aspects of the Lucy mission, from the spacecraft and instrument payload, flight hardware and software, through to systems engineering, mission assurance, ground systems, and the overall science mission objectives. It marks the end of Lucy's design phase, and a shift to actually building the spacecraft and its instruments to explore the Trojan asteroids. The mission will provide an unparalleled glimpse into the formation of our solar system, helping astronomers better understand the source of volatiles and organics on terrestrial planets, as well as the evolution of planetary systems as a whole. 
Lockheed Martin has been awarded the contract to build the spacecraft, while NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, together with Johns Hopkins University and the Arizona State University, will build the suite of complementary imaging and mapping instruments to remotely probe this enigmatic population of asteroids. It's an exciting mission, and we'll keep you up to date with its evolution. You're listening to Space Time, still to come, ESA's climate change efforts, and November Skywatch brings us three meteor showers, the November Orionids, the Taurids, and the Leonids. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter spacecraft has now completed its test campaign in Europe, and as we speak, it's now on its way to Cape Canaveral, ahead of its launch in February 2020. The spacecraft, which was built by Airbus in the UK, has spent the last year at the IABG Test Centre near Munich, undergoing final testing and checkout before launch. This included ensuring deployment mechanisms all worked the way they should, and confirming that the spacecraft can withstand the vibrations of launch, as well as the thermal extremes and vacuum of space. The probe will next be readied for its final phase of pre-launch preparations at Cape Canaveral. Solar Orbiter will launch aboard a NASA-provided Atlas V-411 rocket slated for February the 6th. Once in space and over the course of several years, the probe will use the gravity assist of Venus and the Earth to raise its orbit above the poles of the Sun, providing new perspectives on our nearest star, including what will be our first images of the Sun's polar regions. Solar Orbiter will follow an elliptical path around the Sun, at its closest bringing it within the orbit of Mercury, just 42 million kilometres from the Sun. As such, the sun-facing parts of the spacecraft will need to withstand temperatures of over 500 degrees Celsius, solar radiation 13 times more intense than for Earth-orbiting satellites. At the same time, other parts will remain in shadow at minus 180 degrees Celsius. Its complementary suite of instruments means it will be able to study the plasma environment locally around the spacecraft, and it will collect data from the Sun, connecting the dots between the Sun's activity and the space environment in the inner solar system. The mission is essential to learn more about the Sun-Earth system. Planet Earth orbits the Sun inside the heliosphere, a giant bubble of plasma generated by the Sun that surrounds the entire solar system, within which the Earth and other planets fall prey to the Sun's space weather. Solar Orbiter will provide a deeper understanding as to how activity on the Sun is linked to these solar storms, which can disrupt electrical systems, interfere with communications networks, damage or destroy satellites, affect navigation systems, and cause people on polar flights and astronauts to suffer increased levels of radiation. Solar Orbiter will follow the legacy of missions such as Ulysses, which circled the Sun in a polar orbit between 1990 and 2009, and its work will complement SOHO, launched in 1995 and still operating today. And it will also provide complementary data sets to NASA's Parker Solar Probe, which will allow more science to be achieved from the two missions than each could gain independently. You're listening to Space Time. Still to come, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter fails to find any trace of India's Vikram Lunar Lander. All that and November Skywatch, still to come on Space Time. Well, sticking with the European Space Agency, and Copernicus is the European Union's Earth Observation Program. Operated by the European Space Agency, the Copernicus Sentinel satellites provide continuous monitoring of Earth's environment and how and why that's being altered by climate change. ESA is currently developing seven missions under the Sentinel program, including radar and superspectral imaging of land and ocean, as well as atmospheric monitoring. 
Sentinel-1 provides all-weather day-night radar imaging for land and ocean services. Sentinel-2 provides high-resolution optical imaging of vegetation, soil and water cover, including inland waterways and coastal areas. Sentinel-3 provides ocean and global land monitoring services. Sentinel-4 will be a payload launched aboard the Meteosat third-generation satellite in 2024 and will provide data for atmospheric composition monitoring. The Sentinel-5 precursor was launched as a stopgap measure two years ago to undertake atmospheric observations formerly carried out by the Envisat spacecraft. The full Sentinel-5 payload, which will also provide data for atmospheric composition monitoring, will be launched aboard the UMETSAT Polar System second-generation spacecraft in 2021. The Sentinel-6 mission, which is slated for launch next year, is intended to provide continuity in high-precision altimetry sea-level measurements following on from the Jason-3 satellite. Climate change is high on the Sentinel agenda, and the global perspective provided by the Sentinel satellites will help communities prepare for its consequences. This report from ESA TV. All over Europe, climate change is a growing concern, with global sea levels rising between 16 and 20 centimetres since 1900. Climate change is undeniably having an effect on oceans, land surfaces, ice caps, and weather patterns across the globe. It is well understood that climate change is caused by atmospheric gases, such as carbon dioxide and methane. When we look at these trace gases, there is an obvious correlation between human activity and climate change. What you see here on this graph is the CO2 concentrations of the atmosphere over the last 800,000 years. And you see that these values are going up and down uh, in different uh, phases. You see on the, the blue lines here are indicating ice ages, and the orange lines here are indicating periods between ice ages or periods where it's much warmer. But you also see that over the last 800,000 years, the value was always below 300 parts per million. And suddenly, since the last century, it goes up very steep towards 400 parts per million or even beyond. Uh, and this is what we, what we have today. This is the increase of carbon dioxide uh, drastically increasing over the last uh, 100 years caused by human beings. In order to tackle climate change, scientists and governments need reliable data to understand how our planet is changing. This can be provided by ESA, which monitors our planet from space. With four EU Copernicus Sentinel missions and four Earth Explorer missions in orbit, ice thickness and coverage, deforestation, soil moisture, sea level and ocean surface temperature, as well as other essential climate variables, can be measured. These satellites have global coverage, revisiting the same region every few days therefore providing a good understanding of the health and behaviour of our planet and how it's affected by climate change. In turn, this offers decision-makers key information for mitigating strategies and policies. Frequency and consistent observations of our environment are very important if we want to give decision-makers the key into their hand on where humankind has to change practices, where we have to be mitigating for encroaching impacts on our environment. Satellites can show us how the world has changed. Like here in the Camargue, France, where the coastline has retreated more than 200 metres in the last 20 years. In the 1980s, seawalls were constructed here in a failed attempt to stop the rising water. Back then, sea level was rising, but more slowly than it is now. Over the last five years, 
records show that the rise in sea level is accelerating. Soon, part of this delta will be lost to the sea. And what is happening here is happening in many parts of the globe. Worldwide, more than 370 million people live less than five meters above sea level. Over a hundred megacities such as New York or Tokyo are near the water. All are at risk. Satellite data gives us the facts so that we can prepare ourselves for the rising tide and protect coastline populations. This data is also used in ESA's Climate Change Initiative, where ESA scientists preserve and work with long-term datasets going back to 30 years and more to get an even better understanding of climate change. Thanks to satellites, we have evidence that the planet is in danger. Now it is up to people on Earth to take the necessary measures in time. The key for sustaining life on Earth might come from space. And that report from ECTV included interviews with Josef Aschbacher, ESA's Director of Earth Observation Programs, and Michael Rast, ESA's Earth Observation Senior Advisor. You're listening to Space Time. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has failed to find any trace of India's Vikram lunar lander. The orbiter's latest flyby of the region where the lander went down on September the 7th failed to find any trace of the spacecraft, despite claims by the Indian Space Research Organization ISRO that its Chandrayaan-2 spacecraft had spotted the lander in one piece on the surface. Chandrayaan-2 was launched aboard India's most powerful rocket, the GSLV Mark II, on July the 22nd, achieving lunar orbit insertion on August the 20th. It then deployed its Vikram lander, which was carrying the Pragyang lunar rover. The 1.5-ton lander was supposed to touch down on a patch of high ground between two craters. However, the lander deviated from its intended trajectory when it was just 2.1 kilometres above the surface. At about the same time, all communications were suddenly lost. Vikram only carried enough battery power to last for 14 days, so there's little hope now of re-establishing contact with the probe. NASA believes the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter team failed to find the lander, either because it's outside the designated search area, despite what the Chandrayaan-2 team say, or alternatively, because it's in shadow. Because of the high latitude, approximately 70 degrees south, the area is never completely free of shadows. Still, the mystery of what happened continues, and so the search goes on. You're listening to Space Time. And time now to turn our eyes to the skies and check out the celestial sphere for November on Skywatch. Of course, November is the 11th and penultimate month of the year in both the Julian and Gregorian calendars. High in the northern skies of November, you'll find the constellation Pegasus, the Mesopotamian and Etruscan mythical winged horse who was born from the blood of Medusa the Gorgon after she was slain by Perseus. The brightest star in Pegasus is the orange supergiant Epsilon Pegasi, located some 690 light years away. It's estimated to have about 12 times the sun's mass and around 185 times our sun's radius. A light year is the distance of about 10 trillion kilometres. The distance a photon can travel in a year at the speed of light, which is about 300,000 kilometres per second in a vacuum, and the ultimate speed limit of the universe. Epsilon Pegasi, together with the stars Markab, Algeneb, Shahit, and Alpha Andromeda, form the astrium or pattern of stars known as the Great Square of Pegasus, a grouping of bright naked eye stars shaped like a square. 
One of the stars in the constellation is 51 Pegasi, which was the first star system beyond the Sun to be discovered having an exoplanet. Also visible in Pegasus is the M15 or NGC 7078 globular cluster, which is located about 33,600 light years away. Globular clusters are tight balls containing thousands of stars, which were originally all formed at the same time in the same molecular gas and dust cloud. M15 is estimated to be around 12 billion years old, making it one of the oldest known globular clusters. And it contains around 100,000 stars, making it one of the most densely packed globular clusters in the Milky Way galaxy. Its core has undergone a contraction known as core collapse, and it has this central density cusp with an enormous number of stars surrounding what may well be a central black hole. M15 also contains at least 112 variable stars, 8 pulsars, including one double neutron star system, and the first ever planetary nebula found in a globular cluster. Now, if you're away from city lights, you'll undoubtedly notice a fuzzy oval-shaped patch of light right next to Pegasus. This is the giant spiral galaxy M31 in Andromeda. Andromeda is the biggest galaxy in the local galaxy group, which also contains the Milky Way. It's located about 2.5 million light-years away. It contains over a trillion stars, that's twice that of the Milky Way, and is about 220,000 light-years across. By comparison, our Milky Way galaxy is maybe 100,000 light-years wide. The Milky Way and Andromeda are expected to collide in about 3.7 to 4.5 billion years from now, eventually merging to form a new, giant elliptical galaxy. Based on current estimates, Andromeda appears to have more older stars than the Milky Way. It also has far less new star production than the Milky Way, and the rate of supernovae events in the Milky Way is also about double that of Andromeda. Andromeda is surrounded by a large massive halo of hot gas, estimated to have at least half the mass of all the stars in the galaxy. The nearly invisible halo stretches about a million light-years from the host galaxy, almost halfway to the Milky Way. Using a good pair of binoculars or a backyard telescope, you can even see dark dust lanes in Andromeda's spiral arms, and you'll notice its bright central galactic core. Located to the east and slightly south of Pegasus, you'll find the ancient constellation of Cetus, the Great Whale. Beta Ceti, or Deneb Catos, is the brightest star in the constellation. It's an orange giant located just 65 light-years away. Deneb Catos means the whale's tail. One of the other stars in Cetus is Myra, the first variable star ever discovered. Located some 420 light-years away, Myra pulses in brightness over a period of around 332 days, changing in diameter from around 400 to 500 times the diameter of the Sun. Alpha Ceti, traditionally called Menkar the Nose, is a red-hued giant star some 220 light-years away. It's actually a double star, with a secondary 93 Ceti being a blue-white star some 440 light-years away. Gamma Ceti, or Kefaljima, or the head of the whale, is another double star. The primary is a yellow star 82 light-years from Earth, while the secondary is a blue star. At 11.9 light-years distant, the yellow dwarf star Tau Ceti is the nearest Sun-like star to the Earth other than the Sun. South of Cetus, you'll see the brilliant star Achenar, which means the river's end, and marks the end of the river Eridanus. Achenar is a binary system, comprising Alpha Eridni, the brightest star or point of light in and lying to the southern tip of the constellation of Eridanus. The two components of Alpha Eridni are designated Alpha Eridni A and Alpha Eridni B and are located some 139 light-years away. Of the ten apparent brightest stars in the night sky, Alpha Eridni is the hottest and bluest in colour. That's due to Achenar being a spectral type B main-sequence star. Achenar has an unusually rapid rotational velocity, causing it to become quite oblate in shape. 
The second star is a smaller spectrotype A white dwarf, which orbits the primary at a distance of just 12 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is around 150 million kilometres, or just over 8 light minutes. Now, if you follow Eridanus towards the east, you'll find Orion, a familiar signpost in the southern summer skies. And to the west of Orion is the constellation of Taurus the Bull. Located in Taurus is M1, the Crab Nebula. This is the remnant of a star which Chinese astronomers saw explode as a supernova way back on July the 4th in the year 1054. They recorded the sudden appearance of a new star in their sky charts at the exact position of the Crab Nebula. They say the supernova appeared brighter than the planet Venus for weeks on end before finally, slowly fading from view after almost two years. The Crab Nebula is located 7,000 light years away and it's expanding at a rate of over 5 million kilometers an hour. At the heart of the nebula is a rapidly spinning neutron star or pulsar, rotating at some 30 pulses per second. It's emitting radiation in all wavelengths, from gamma rays and X-rays, through ultraviolet, optical and infrared, and even into radio waves. Observations indicate the pulsar is slowing down, and will fall to just half its current rate within the next thousand years. November is also a good time to check out the Pleiades, or Seven Sisters, one of the nearest open star clusters to Earth. Now, depending on whose measurements you prefer, the Pleiades are located somewhere between 118 and 137 parsecs away, a parsec being 3.26 light-years. Also known as M45, the Pleiades are located in the constellation Taurus, and are composed mostly of hot blue-white stars. Amazingly, different cultures in vastly different parts of the world all describe the Pleiades as seven women or seven sisters, possibly as a result of some ancient throwback to early human civilization, when Homo sapiens were still living in Africa. Well, just like October, November sees three meteor showers. There's the November Orionids, the Taurids and the Leonids. Although peaking in late October, the Orionids are continuing to sprinkle down during the start of November and are usually at their best in the wee small hours before dawn. They're generated by a debris trail left behind by the Comet Halley and appear to radiate out from the direction of the constellation of Orion the Hunter. The Taurids are generated by the Comet Enki, and as their name suggests, they appear to radiate out from the constellation Taurus the Bull. Enki and the Taurids are believed to be the remnants of a much larger comet, which disintegrated over the past 20,000 to 30,000 years, both breaking into several smaller pieces and releasing pieces by normal cometary activity. And maybe occasionally by close encounters with the gravitational tidal force of the Earth and other planets. In fact, this cometary stream of material is the largest in the inner solar system. Being so spread out, the Earth takes several weeks to pass through it, causing an extended period of meteor activity compared to the much smaller periods of activity in other showers. These interactions have with Jupiter caused the Taurids to be segmented into separate northern and southern streams. The southern Taurids usually last from around September the 25th to November the 25th, while well, the northern Taurids go from October the 12th to around December the 2nd. The Taurids are also quite diffuse, usually only producing about 7 meteors an hour. However, they are composed of more massive material, pebbles instead of dust grains, so they tend to produce a higher percentage of very bright meteors known as fireballs, produced by larger meteoroids burning through the atmosphere. The southern Taurids are expected to put on their best show just after midnight on November the 5th. The Leonid's meteor shower, which will peak on November the 18th, usually produces around 15 meteors an hour. However, it's been known to occasionally produce some spectacular meteor storms, with showers in 1999, 2001 and 2002 producing up to 3,000 Leonid's meteors an hour. 
but the granddaddy of all had to have been the Leonid's meteor shower of 1966. It generated thousands of meteors a minute, described as falling like illuminated rain. Leonids are usually picked up after midnight, with peaks occurring just before dawn. Produced by debris from the comet Temple Tuttle, the Leonids, as their name suggests, radiate out from the constellation of Leo the Lion. The Leonids are a fast-moving stream which encounters the path of Earth at 72 kilometers per second. Larger Leonids are about 10 millimeters across, having a mass of half a gram, and are known for generating bright meteors. In fact, the annual Leonid shower may deposit between 12 and 13 tons of particles across the planet. Joining us now to check out the rest of the night skies of November is Jonathan Nally, editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This time of year we've got the Milky Way, which is our galaxy seen from the inside, and it's hugging the sort of western horizon uh, in the evening in November with the tail and stinger of Scorpius sticking up into the sky. You've got Sagittarius just nearby, which is a constellation, and towards that direction in the sky we're looking right towards the centre of our galaxy, the Milky Way. The northern half of the sky looks pretty bare this time of year in the evening. It's filled with a lot of big constellations that have few bright stars. Uh, you've got Pegasus constellation, that's the winged horse. You've got Pisces, the fish. You've got Cetus, the whale. You've got Aries, the ram. You've got one called Eridanus, which is the river. None of them have any really bright, you know, prominent sort of stars, but they're interesting constellations anyway, and lots of them, of course, have deep sky objects that the amateur astronomers like to look at when they get their telescopes I was about to out. say, if you uh, have a decent-sized telescope and have a look at that part of the sky this time of year, you'll be stunned at what's there. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's always plenty of things to see because the telescope gives you bigger eyes, basically, and you can pull in more light, you can see fainter things, uh, and you can magnify them a bit, so... Uh, yeah, there's always stuff to see. So that's in the north, but over in the eastern sky, yeah, you've got a constellation of Orion is just starting to poke its head above the horizon. So for us, this is a sign that summer is approaching in the southern hemisphere. For our friends in the northern half of the planet, it means winter's approaching. I was uh, c communicating with a friend in London the other day, only two degrees in the morning when they're off to get their train to go to work. That's just uncivilised, isn't it? My first radio station was in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney. I mean, it's pretty cold up there in winter, and I was shocked when I got up one morning and stepped outside and the ground crackled because there was a puddle there and the puddle had frozen. It's the first time I experienced something like that. That's, I think I think it's very uncivilised. Uh, I, I think thermometers really shouldn't be able to go below about 20, 20 oh, degrees yeah. Celsius. Indeed. I mean, uh, anything below that, don't get out of bed. Anyway, back to the sky. Uh, now, if you're trying to find the Southern Cross this time of year and you can't spot it, don't worry, you're not going mad, although you might be mad, but not because of this. You don't need new glasses or anything because during the evening hours this time of year, the cross is upside down and very, very low on the Southern horizon for most people, or even hidden below the horizon, depending on how far north you are, uh, you might not be able to see it at all. On the other hand, if you're sky watching in the early hours of the morning after midnight, you will be able to see the Southern Cross because it will have risen a little bit as the, as the Earth has turned, and it, you'll be able to see it on its left-hand side, about a third of the way up from the horizon down towards the south. And you also see the two pointer stars nearby. Uh, these are the ones that uh, are fairly bright, and if, if you draw a line between them and continue that line on, you more or less point towards the Southern Cross. One of those two pointer stars, of course, is the famous Alpha Centauri, which is the, or was the destination for the Jupiter 2 in the TV series Lost in Space. Danger, uh, Robinson, danger. You babbling booby. The, um, I don't know how they couldn't find Alpha Centauri, given that it is the closest star system to our solar system, but they only had 1960s technology, let's face it. Yeah, no matter where you looked, there was a picture of Andromeda there somewhere. <laughs> That's about it, yeah. Well, they, they probably could have got to there. 
So anyway, by the early morning hours in November this time of year, by about 3 o'clock, say, the, the sky has changed quite a lot because the Earth has rotated and brought new constellations into view. So now you have Orion riding really high in the northern sky. You've got the constellation Canis Major with uh, Sirius, its bright star, the brightest star in the night sky, is high overhead for people at mid-latitudes down south. You've got Gemini and Leo and Cancer, uh, the constellations are visible in the northern half of the sky, filled with all sorts of really good things to see, star clusters and nebulae and things. So it's actually a really good time. And as the months tick over, you know, as I said, you have to be up after midnight to see those ones. But as the months continue to tick over, they'll be rising earlier and earlier. So by the time summer's really full on for us down here in the south, these constellations will then be evening viewing for us. So it won't be long now. Now, as far as the planets go, uh, the beginning of this month, this year, is really, really good for evening viewing because just after sunset, you should be able to see four planets, uh, at least in the first week or so of November. You have four planets more or less in a row in, in the west, sort of extending not, not horizontally but in a row vertically. Down near the horizon, you'll have Venus and Mercury, with Venus being the brighter of those two. Then up a bit higher, you'll see Jupiter, which is also very bright. And a bit higher still, you'll see Saturn, which is not quite as bright as Jupiter and has a slightly yellowish sort of tint. As the days go on, Mercury will be dropping lower and lower and eventually go down below the horizon. You won't be able to see it anymore in the evening, while Venus actually be climbing higher and higher. Now, make sure you take a look on the evening uh, of November 23rd and the 24th in this sort of twilight glow because you'll see Jupiter and Venus very, very close to each other in sort of um, planetary terms. They'll be really close and Venus will be the brighter of those two. It should look pretty spectacular. If you're looking for Mars, which is the only other planet uh, left of the five you know, bright naked eye planets, you do have to be an early riser for that one because it'll be very low on the eastern horizon this, this month as the dawn light is starting to grow, and I mean really low. So if you have a horizon that's, uh, you know, um, blocked by trees and houses and things, then you might not be able to spot it. You might have to get up on top of a hill or climb to the top of a telephone pole or go parachuting Don't or something. do that. Do not climb to the top of a telephone pole. Go to the top of a hill or find a tall building. Unless we have some possums listening. Well, hello, possums indeed, yes. Surely good. Anyway, that's the night sky, mate. That's Jonathan Nelly, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web that I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary, and you can also find us on the Spacetime with Stuart Gary YouTube channel. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 